Welcome to Allocation Disorder, latest episode. I am Sam Stasekul, joined as always by Paul Tenorio. Paul, MLS is back, man. We're recording on Thursday night, just after the New England Revolution beat the Montreal Impact 1-0. Um, and we're three games in, and we recorded, I think, three nights ago, and it feels like it was three years ago. Um, a lot has happened since then. But before we get into all of that, um, how's it going? How have you experienced the tournament so far? It's been, I guess, bizarre. Like, I feel like I haven't even really had the greatest chance to absorb the soccer. You know, because so much has still been going on in these first few days that it's just been hard to focus on the on-field product. But I guess yeah. it's nice that soccer is back. And I'm excited for what I hope will be a, a certain point in time when I can just kind of enjoy a game. And that probably will also come when, you know, when the games get a little bit sharper, which I think they will. I, I, I think they've been competitive, but I think they'll get sharper as we go. Yeah, I think the first, we're going to see some rust. We saw some rust tonight. You know, New England probably should have won that game by a few goals at least. Um, but they were a little bit rusty in front of net and Montreal couldn't find a rhythm in any way, shape or form. Um, but we'll get into a little bit more of what's going on on the field a little bit later in the show. I think at the start, it's only appropriate, you know, however much um, you might be tired of listening to us talk about this stuff and however much we might be tired of talking about it to, to lead with the news about Nashville. So the last show we recorded after Dallas was withdrawn from the tournament, um, Nashville has subsequently also been withdrawn from the tournament. They had nine players test positive, um, and the decision to remove them from Group A, which once upon a time had six teams, um, was made earlier today on Thursday. That was made official. Um, the Chicago Fire moved to Group B, which is where Dallas had been, so they only had three teams over there. Um, so the fire are now from group A to group B and all six groups in the tournament have exactly four teams. So from that perspective, it's a little bit smoother and easier. Um, I think that's the only perspective that it's a little bit smoother and easier, obviously a little bit of, uh, I mean, it's sad for Nashville. It's sad for Dallas. You feel for those guys who not only half their team or a third of their team are sick, um, but they're stuck in Orlando um, for at least another couple of weeks here. Uh, and that's, you know, you go down there, you train, you leave your families, you're in quarantine, you're in this hotel and you don't even get to do what you came to do. So that's, that's gotta be really difficult for all of them mentally. So, you know, I think your heart goes out in that way. Uh, it's unfortunate what happens. Um, but that is kind of the big news. And then the other big news, which I would be very remiss to not mention was the protests that we've seen, um, starting on Wednesday night. Um, before the Orlando-Miami game that opened the tournament. Uh, you had, I believe, around 170 black players from all around MLS, most every team, if not every single team, um, out on the field um, for 8 minutes and 46 seconds. And Paul, you wrote about this, but it was super, super powerful. Powerful, um, You know, obviously, I think... I mean, I've seen the video. I think you've seen the video of George Floyd being killed, but... Um, you don't really realize how long eight minutes and 46 seconds is until you're reminded of it in a way like that, like we were on Wednesday night. Um, and that was very powerful and, and very moving. And Philadelphia 
the union had a separate kind of action today where all of the players on their team had jerseys with the names of black people who have been killed by police in recent years on the back of their jerseys instead of their own names. Um, and, you know, they didn't ask for permission from the league before that. They just went ahead and did it. Um, and that was a pretty cool and pretty powerful thing too. So lots going on, um, both on the fields and off the fields. Um, but let's back it up a second and, and I want to get your thoughts on the protest too later on, but let's back it up a second to, to Nashville and kind of where things stand with the overall viability of this tournament in regards to the coronavirus. Yeah, I think there are some interesting questions still to be answered by Major League Soccer. Um, namely, the biggest one is, you know, how do you justify a million-dollar prize that's no longer available to all of the teams, a Champions League slot that's no longer available to all the teams based on the competition, and the prospect of three regular season games that are no longer available to all the teams. And I know MLS has talked about trying to replace those games, but it'll be interesting to see how they do that without creating other games. Like are Dallas and Nashville just going to play each other three extra times once the regular season begins to get those three games? I feel like that's the easiest way to do it. So those are still questions that are left to be answered that I think, um, you know, are going to matter in the long run, especially if the regular season continues. And in and in the now, in the present, I think we have to take a second to just, you know, recognize the difficulty that these teams are going through and these individuals are going through. The players who are sick, obviously, um, must be really scary to to be sick and or, or to have coronavirus and to be separated from your family, not know how long it's going to be before you get back to your family. And for the players who aren't, um, who haven't tested positive, you know, they're also separated from their family. They've also been in their hotel rooms for several days. For Dallas players, seven or eight days with only one um, team walk in that in that period. And that was that came at the end of this this week long quarantine. Nashville players are in the midst of a quarantine where they're stuck in their rooms. So, you know, I, I think for me, I'm I'm trying to kind of pull back from the numbers and the news that we've been reporting and, and think about kind of what it feels like for these players, you know, who did get on a plane, on a bus and then on a plane to go away from their families that have been sacrificing the way they've been sacrificing and now are not going to get a chance to play games. And, you know, Luchi Gonzalez actually spoke about this in the press conference that he did through FC Dallas. He talked about, yeah, you, you get on a plane, you get on a bus, you have these anxieties that exist. You get on a training field, those all exist. And then, you know, nothing ends up happening. So uh, as far as competition. So I, I think that's um, a really, really, really tough place for these players to be in right now. And I think that's worth worth speaking about as well. Yeah, no doubt. Um, you know, these are individual human beings at the end of the day. Uh, we like to think of them as athletes that, that wear a certain color laundry and that we cheer for, but, um, or report on in our cases, but yeah, they are human beings and they have real concerns just like you or I would, or anyone listening to this would, if we were in their situation. So yeah, definitely important to keep those in perspective. Um, my overall take on this thing is I'm kind of torn right now. Um, I wrote the other day that it feels weird. It feels kind of dirty. 
um, to have games going on as you have, you know, 20 plus players um, now uh, dealing with this virus in your bubble in Orlando. Um, and who knows how many more might test positive going, you know, as we, as we go further down the road. But people have been asking me if I think the tournament now that it's started is going to be completed. And I have no idea what the answer to that question is, but I'm somewhat hopeful at this point that we'll start to see kind of a slowdown. Maybe this is naive, um, but a lot of teams have been there, you know, past kind of the most common incubation period of, of five to seven days that, that we talked about at length the other night. Um, and it seems like it hasn't really been transmitted through the bubble, um, which gives me a little bit of hope. Now, there are a lot of teams that haven't been there very long and could start having positive tests pop up here in the next few days, um, and it wouldn't be a surprise at all. So, so who knows? That's anyone's guess, right? Um, but I guess I'm at least holding out a little bit of hope um, that maybe it's just Dallas and Nashville and they can move ahead with this thing and in a couple of weeks' time, everything will feel a lot more secure and in a lot more stable ground. But I know you have concerns, Paul, that this thing's already kind of out in the bubble, um, which, you know, to a degree it is, right? But I, I, I want you to elaborate on those a little bit um, for the listeners here. Well, I think for me, the positive test for FC Dallas of one coach and one player in the last couple of days is, is concerning because they've been in the bubble for 11 days. It's been 10 days, I believe, since they trained. And so that just goes to show that while that five to seven day window is the most common window, that incubation period does last up to 14 days. And if it isn't that these players tested positive from outside the bubble and they are just on the latter side, the player and the coach of the incubation period, then it means that there was spread within the bubble, even if it was spread from one player on FC Dallas to another player on FC Dallas or from one player on FC Dallas or coach to another coach. You know, there is spread. There could be spread in Orlando. So those tests, I think, are more concerning to me than any other that we've had because of the timeline of when Dallas arrived and now when those tests have come back. And I think it's, for me, a red flag also because it means that we aren't as close to being kind of in that clear that you just talked about of getting out of that incubation window for all of the teams that have arrived and that we're not going to be there for a week and a half because there were a number of teams that showed up on Monday. So it would really be two weeks from Monday before we can feel confident if no other tests have happened in the interim that, that there's no opportunity for spread. So that for me is the biggest concern. And I, you know, again, I'm not trying to be, negative but when you have the conversations that you have with people who are studying this virus who understand the incubation period who understand the risks that are are involved we have to acknowledge that they exist and to not do so i think is irresponsible and we've learned already now through positive tests with three different teams two teams especially had outbreaks but one other team had a positive test that you know there this virus is in the hotel and it can infect people in different teams and there are those risks that those players are currently in the bubble practicing and playing and so i i just am kind of in that mode right now where i'm holding my breath and saying you know i really hope 
that we don't see another positive, and especially that we don't see a positive from another team who has been in the bubble for an extended period of time. Um, and like you said, we're waiting. We're waiting to hear. We we are. We're absolutely waiting. So it's going to be really interesting to see. You know, I know that you and I will try and do our best to stay on top of it as as things progress here over the next week or two. Um, but I mentioned the protest earlier, Paul, and I mentioned that I wanted to come back to you on it since you wrote about it last night and you did a little bit of reporting. Um, what, what, what have your thoughts been, uh, what were your thoughts on what we saw on Wednesday? And, um, you know, do you think, uh, what do you think we'll see here moving forward on that front? Well, first I, I think that it really, it really hammered home. First of all, the power of silence, that display for eight minutes and 46 seconds of silence, as you alluded to earlier, as you said earlier, it really reinforced how long eight minutes and 46 seconds is. And that to me was the most striking part of that protest. It made everyone reflect on the brutality of George Floyd's killing. And that will stick with me for a long time. You know, just as when you watch that video, you know, there are so many aspects of it that are disturbing and emotionally um, just overwhelming. And I thought that that protest was a way to call back to that and to force you to really think about that level of police brutality. I thought it was a really smart way to do something different and to do something impactful. And I also want to say that I think it is indicative of the leadership of a group that's come together very quickly and has already started to make an impact. And it's not easy to organize a protest like that. I don't imagine it was easy to get ESPN or, or to pitch the idea of having nearly nine minutes of silence on a national television broadcast. And yet they were able to execute it. And I, you know, having done the roundtable with you, Sam, and with five leaders of the, the executive board of the Black Players for Change in Major League Soccer, I walked away from that roundtable believing that they were going to be a really important organization for the sport in this country and the protest last night only reinforced that for me. Yeah, and I think honestly you can take it um, beyond being a really or powerful and important organization for the sport in this country. I think if other leagues and other sports um, are doing similar things and kind of looking at this, and I know there are efforts in the NBA and the NFL and all around, right? Even in Europe you're seeing it. Um, with some of the soccer leagues and some of the things that are going on over there. Um, but these guys are a model for everybody else in what they're doing right now. And I would really encourage everyone to take a few minutes and read that piece um, because they're trying very intentionally to be meaningful with everything they do. And they don't have the platform of a LeBron James, right? Justin Morrow is the president. He's not Chris Paul, right? <laughs> He's not... Um, he's, he's not at that level of stardom or notoriety, certainly. Um, but these guys are, you know, obviously that this is their lived experience, so they know what they're talking about. But Paul, you mentioned it, like the way they did the protest the other night, like 
I thought it was incredible. Like, not only was it powerful, but it was something that we hadn't seen before. And it sounds kind of, I don't want to sound trite. Like I said, I don't want to sound insensitive, but I think that stuff is important. Um, and it was a good reminder for me to keep pushing and to keep doing my own work. And I hope it was a good reminder for other people in that way too. And I'm sure we'll see a lot more of it um, as, as the tournament progresses here. You know, we saw it from Philadelphia today um, in a pretty powerful way. Um, and I think we'll continue to see it from a number of other teams as, as this thing moves on. And Sam, really quickly, uh, really quickly, just to add to that, I want to say like, uh, I think one sign of how effective a protest is, like you're saying, is that it can inspire others to protest in similar fashion or, you know, obviously the, the intent is to, to inspire people to act right in their own lives. But tonight during the Montreal match, Thierry Henry took a knee for the first eight minutes and 46 seconds of the game. Mm-hmm. And it was similar. Uh, it was a similar, it wasn't, it didn't have the impact of the silence, but it was a similar way for the protest to last over that time frame. And, you know, obviously Henri is a global figure and I'm sure his protest will be um, something that goes kind of around the, the footballing world. And, you know, that to me shows kind of the power of a protest done right and done in, in an inspiring way and done, like you said, in a creative way that that makes people think, hey, that that really had an impact. How can I capture some of that and try to use my platform? And I thought Henri's um, moment tonight was was really strong as well. And I hope and I, I wonder whether or not we'll see other protests that, that take a similar path to what the... BPC started on the first night of the MLS's back tournament. Apologies to Paul and Sam for the interruption, but this interruption is sort of coming from their former boss, uh, so I'm sure they're used to it, because this episode of Allocation Disorder is brought to you by Artifact. Artifact creates personal podcasts for you on whatever subject you want. You may have heard us talk about the one they created for Daryl on some of the Total Soccer Show episodes this week, but there are a bunch of other ways to use Artifact. They interview kids about who they are in that moment. They interview newlyweds, so it could be a great gift for weddings. They interview elderly folks about family heritage, an example of of that concept. Uh, someone hired Artifact to interview their father and heard this memory about a memory from World War II when the dad was a kid growing up in Pittsburgh. And I heard this loud roar. It was getting louder and louder and louder. And I leaned out the window. To my amazement, um, three four-engine B-24s flew at rooftop level over the house. The lead aircraft uh, waved its wings as it flew by, and that was the son who lived down at the other end of the street. Well, as it turned out, they all they were headed for Europe. They were heading up toward New York and then over to Europe. He never came back. So that's one example. Then there's the one of Daryl telling his story about his diagnosis and treatment for cancer. You can find out more from that one at heyartifact.com slash Daryl. And if you want to commission one of your own, either for you or someone you care about, go to heyartifact.com and get $40 off your first artifact with the code TSS. That's heyartifact.com. Use code TSS to get $40 off your first artifact. Thank you very much to the fine folks at Artifact for sponsoring this episode of Allocation Disorder. Now back to Paul and Sam. Speaking of Henri, he came out and he slammed his players' effort and desire in their loss to the revolution <laughs> um, just a few minutes ago, actually, as we were recording. Um, 
they weren't very good. I do want to talk about these games a little bit, Paul, because we've been talking about so much other stuff for these last few months. So let's talk a little bit about the games. Um, anything stand out to you in particular over these first three matches, uh, either f- from one of the individual games or from the three as a whole? What What are you thinking about um, as you kind of look back at the first trio of, uh, of contests? Yeah, I think um, the thing that stands out to me most of the three games was the intensity in the Orlando-Miami game. I thought it was really chippy. I thought Dom Dwyer should have been carded multiple times in that game. Ended up catching Andres Romero with an arm to the throat. And I thought, um, or sorry, Andres Reyes, rather. Um, <laughs> Andres Romero was he was he former Impact? Is that a guy that was on the Impact a few years ago? Am I making stuff up? It's I late. Know where I, where I pulled that from? It's he's a golfer. I Andres think. Romero. Okay, there you go. You know, the anyway, problem is you were I, saying the intensity. I'm in a PGA pool, and that's where I pull Andres Romero from. Uh, Andres Reyes. You're the, in a PGA the, pool. Yeah, we don't need to get into that's my weird man fantasy sports habits on this podcast yeah, right now you're, you're, we you need play to fantasy that. golf it's a survivor league no i'm judging you i'm judging you very hard <laughs> that's fine. i'm sorry i'm sorry go back to, go back to talking about the the turnpike tussle please <laughs> i really i just want to defend my actions for a second but anyways um no i thought i thought it was an, a very <laughs> I thought it was a very passionate game and I that kind of stood out to me in that I think that they're, you know, like I said, I don't think that the technical side of the game is going to be there early on, but I do think that the players care. They're on the field. They're competing and, you know, there's a million dollars at stake. There's a Champions League berth at stake. And so I think, um, you know, I think we're going to kind of at least get that level. Maybe not for Montreal today, as Thierry Henry said. Um, but that kind of stood out to me from from the first three games. I thought that was the probably the best game so far that's happened just because of the back and forth and the goals and the late the late winner from Nani. I thought it was better than the two games today. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. That game was pretty uneven for me. I thought Philly and New York had some good moments. I thought all of the games have been pretty slow, which is very understandable considering the lack of match fitness and the heat of Florida. Um, I wasn't expecting anything different. Um, but, you know, we, we've seen a lot of walking around. Uh, I thought Orlando-Miami was better in that regard than the other two, particularly late. You know, guys were flying around, um, which was kind of cool. Um, the quality, you know, hasn't been... Hasn't been awesome, but like you said, that's sort of to be expected at this point. Um, hopefully, it'll get better in the second round of games. Um, I don't know. A few things have sort of stood out to me, and maybe reinforced a little bit. Um, you know, watching Brendan Aronson today, I thought was pretty encouraging for fans of the U.S. national team. I thought he looked... You know, of course, he was uneven just like everybody else, but I thought he looked pretty good for the most part. You know, he showed a little, a few flashes of, of why he's pretty highly rated and why he's been called into the full national team under Greg Berhalter. Um, I think in the second half of 2019 was when he got his first call up and I think again in January camp, unless I'm misremembering. Um, so I thought that was pretty good. Um, I thought the Revs should have, I think I've mentioned this already on the pod, but I thought they should have won by a few goals against Montreal. 
Um, but Gustavo Bo is very good. Carles Hill it remains a joy to watch. Um, Adam Buxa wasn't quite there in, in at least tonight. You know, he's clearly a little bit more reliant on service and he didn't get a ton of it. He's their new DP striker, of course. Um, but I think the Revs and Philly, for that matter, um, are both pretty strong. You know, they're both not the most talented teams in the world, but, you know, they're more talented than most. They're more cohesive than most. Um, and I think on their day, they're a legitimate threat to pretty much anybody in this league. Um, I don't think I would say that about Orlando or Miami, who we saw in the first game. Um, I wouldn't say that about Montreal. I would say that about New York City FC, but they've gotten off to a pretty slow start, which, well, I shouldn't say that. They, uh, you know, they haven't won in three MLS games, um, which have been separated by four months and they actually haven't scored a goal. So that's not great. Um, so Ronnie Dyla, not off to an awesome start with a team that I think many, maybe myself included, um, considered the best on paper in the Eastern conference. So I don't know. Those are, that's a lot that I just kind of rat tatted at you right there. Um, I do have another question for you, Paul, though, and you can take, you can, you can address this and you can address whatever I just said if you want, but what did, uh, what did you think of the morning game today? We had a 9 a.m. kickoff, a little breakfast with MLS. I love it. I think for any soccer fan in the United States, morning soccer has become a really big part of our lives, waking up and having a coffee and watching the Premier League or the Bundesliga, um, you know, for me, certainly it's been an even bigger part of my life since I had a kid and she was up really early. I'd get up, I'd volunteer for the early morning wake ups because I could watch the 6 a.m. Premier League game. So it was like really cool. It's been really cool to watch the league that I cover for a living in that time slot. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, 8 a.m. Central for me this morning. And yeah, settling in to watch soccer with a coffee is, is, I think, fun. Um, I do think that that's going to be the most brutal time slot for every team who has to play in it because by the time you get to the final minutes, you're close to uh, 11 a.m. on the East Coast. It's going to be, you know, over 100 degrees on the heat index for the most part. And you haven't played soccer in a really long time. It's probably going to be very, very slow in all of the morning games. But from a fan standpoint, from a viewer standpoint, I think it's fantastic. I thought, and I think it was the right play by MLS and ESPN to create that time slot in order to get some games in at a time when you might be able to pick up some fans who are working from home and say, hey, why not throw some live sports on TV in the morning? Yeah, for sure. It's going to be really interesting to see what the rating comes back. I think uh, it was 484,000 viewers, according to a report that I saw for the opener on ESPN, um, plus another, I think, 28K on ESPN Deportes, which is, for MLS, that's a good number, um, a very good number even. Um, and I'm really, really curious to see because ESPN pushed hard for those early games and they wanted them. And, you know, the weather sort of made them a necessity, the weather and the overall window of time available for this tournament. Um, so, you know, they weren't getting around it. You were going to have to do three games in one day and, and with the heat in Orlando, you know, you got to put one in the morning. Um, but they really pushed for it. And, you know, Taylor Twelman, he talked about it publicly, I think on Wednesday of just kind of like, Hey, if these games rate well, maybe we'll see something from MLS coming down the road in the future where they start a game at 11 a.m. on the East coast on a Saturday. 
and it's right after the Premier League, and it's a lead in from that straight in straight into MLS action, um, and maybe you pick up a few more viewers that way. Um, I think it's going to be really interesting going forward in 2020, actually, right? Because say let let's say there is a regular season after the tournament ends, which I don't think is guaranteed at this point um, for a lot of different reasons that we can go into another time. But let's say there is, right? Most likely, you're not going to have fans in stadiums, at least not at the beginning, right? And if you don't have fans in stadiums, well, then you can sort of put the game at whatever time you want. You don't have to worry about selling tickets or getting people in through the gates. Um, you don't have to worry about any of that stuff. So, you're, you're putting together a product for television. And so, if you really wanted to, you could continue playing games at 9 or 10 a.m., um, without much issue. <laughs> um, and so if this goes well, if these seven morning matches, which we're one down now, but if these seven morning matches go well, maybe we see more of them in 2020. Um, once teams return to their home markets, I actually wrote about that for a piece that will be running on Friday. Um, well, it will have already ran by the time you're listening to this. So check it out. But um, I think that could be interesting because we all know MLS needs to goose those TV numbers before the uh, before the deal expires at the end of 2022 if they won't have any hope of becoming the league, the kind of league they want to be. Um, and so I wouldn't be surprised if they got a little weird with it, experimented a little, maybe had some early kickoffs uh, down the road. And Sam, you know, you mentioned the 484,000 viewers that tuned in. Were you, I think so, yeah. yeah were yeah. you surprised by that number? Did you expect it to be higher? I mean, I know it's – I think the, I think I read in the press release the third highest number for MLS um, for ESPN, but it's lower than the opener was on ESPN earlier this year for the start of the 2020 season. So, considering, you know, that it's just Who MLS and NWSL, LAFC <laughs> played – I don't remember – it's been so, so long ago. That's <laughs> bad. Um, it's we digress. Sorry. Yeah. Well, I just wonder, like, what were your expectations for numbers? You know, did you expect it to get up there in that six hundred and thirty, six hundred and forty thousand range that happened in no. that that opening game? Were you expect? Are you expecting these TV numbers to grow to go down? I, I just wonder how we should be judging the TV audience, considering that right now MLS has this kind of exclusive window. At least from an American though. sports perspective, beyond the NWSL and MLS, they weren't. No one's playing at the same time as MLS right now. The, this these games are are on yeah, their but, own. But there they're are so many options. They're not head to head, but there are so many soccer games on TV all the time, right? In England, in Spain, in Italy, you know, you have a hot, lot of high level. Uh, soccer on and then you have nwsl as you mentioned and so if you want to get your soccer fix you know and you're just a casual fan and you haven't really paid attention to mls before well you might not be turning to it um in terms of what do i expect for these ratings uh i don't really know like the circumstances are so weird i'm not gonna like be overly harsh if they're not great um, I would say what I would be comparing them to is the regular, regular season numbers, which last year I think averaged about 250K for English language broadcasts. Um, and I think if MLS is at 250 for this tournament, that would be disappointing considering all the factors you mentioned. If they're around 400, I think that would be pretty solid. And I wouldn't be surprised if that's where it, that's about where it's at. Um, but I don't know, man. 
like this whole thing is impossible to predict <laughs> um, on that level and on many other levels. Um, so I don't know. I think it's probably more likely that they'll be around the regular season average. I don't know how many new fans this is going to bring in, particularly since the quality of play we've seen in these first three games hasn't been hasn't been all that high. I do think it's significant though that Sports Center has been featuring a lot more Major League Soccer. And for me, that's always been the missing piece for ESPN and for the national broadcast is if you just put on an MLS game and you're just focused on selling MLS to MLS fans, you're only going to get the MLS fans that exist. And the missing piece to me has always been informed discussion about Major League Soccer in the wider network, in Sports Center, in Around the Horn, in PTI. That's not going to exist with PTI. It could theoretically with Around the Horn. It doesn't yet. Um, you know, I don't think you can force Wilbon and Kornheiser to now become soccer experts this late in their career. But missing soccer in those shows, informed discussions about soccer in those shows and about MLS specifically, I think really limits the the potential to grow an audience because sports fans they do latch on to really good stories and they will pay attention if you tell them i always use the analogy of or, or the the kind of comparison of women's college softball it's got this huge passionate fan base but when the women's college world series is on people buy into those storylines that they're that are discussed on sports center and the highlights that happen and you know who's the hot team and you know that drives an audience and, you know, I this doesn't help you and I, Sam, but I think it's the same discussion I used to have when I worked at the Orlando Sentinel with Orlando City is, you know, if you want to sell season tickets to people in Orlando and you break news, quote unquote, through your own team Twitter account or website, then you're re- only reaching the fans who are already following your Twitter account and your website. Whereas if news breaks through the Orlando Sentinel, you're reaching all of their subscribers in the area. And the the coverage of that newspaper is going to drive more new fans to your product. And so I'm not saying that we're going to see the numbers here, but I think if ESPN continues to showcase MLS in a more um, prominent fashion in SportsCenter and in their ancillary programming, they will have a better chance of increasing those audience and of getting people to buy in and watch these games than if they just depend on MLS and kind of on their their natural soccer uh, outlets to advertise this tournament. I mean, they might show it on SportsCenter a little bit. I haven't seen a ton, admittedly. But they, I mean, you talk about their ancillary programming. Like, this isn't going to be on on that many ESPN shows, man. They don't have the people to talk about it. Like it's just 12 men pretty much in terms of people that go on the actual ESPN linear properties to talk about MLS. And you can't have a really informed discussion if it's just one-sided like that. You know, all, no shade to Taylor. <laughs> like, it's just like, it's easier to have a discussion and a meaningful conversation if there are two engaged parties. Right. And I'm not sure that they're going to be willing to do that, but that's a different discussion. Fox is showing the game on Saturday, Big Fox, between Atlanta and the Red Bulls. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, how an over-the-air network that a lot more people have access to than have access to ESPN, what kind of number that that will draw in. You know, I think that helped the NWSL for their first match in the Challenge Cup, it being on Big CDS. Um, so we'll see there. Um, but, I, I mean, I don't think there's any bones about it, though, that this is important 
from an audience standpoint, from a TV reading standpoint for MLS. You know, this could be the only real property they have this year in terms of national television. Um, and the clock is ticking on this media rights deal. And that next one is going to determine so much about the trajectory of this league. Um, and I think, and I think the short, medium and long term. Um, so I think it's important. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see. Uh, there are a few other things that I'm looking at here um, that I wanted to share just really quickly um, before we kind of, you know, start to wrap up. One, um, what is the post-tournament plan for the three Canadian teams? How is that going to work? I have no idea and I need to find this out and I'm going to try and go report it because you saw Toronto FC 2 um, who are in USL League 1 and obviously affiliated with Toronto um, pull out of the USL League 1 season the other day basically citing travel concerns, you know, between the U.S. and Canada and needing to quarantine and all of these different things. Um, how is it going to work if the league is going back into home markets and teams are having to go to and from the United States and Canada um, with the virus still out there? I don't know. I don't know that there's an answer to that. So that's going to be really interesting. And I think the same thing will apply to the Florida clubs if it continues to spike you know, because maybe certain states are going to put in restrictions on traveling to and from Florida and needing to quarantine when you arrive back. Um, so, all of that is going to be very curious to see. I think hospitalizations down in Florida are another thing that we need to keep an eye on. Um, you know, we saw Reyes from Miami. He had to go to the hospital and now he's in quarantine in the hotel. He didn't stay overnight, but, you know, you're exposed if you go into the hospital because all of those are pretty full with COVID patients. Um, and if you I mean, inevitably, there are going to be more injuries, hopefully nothing too serious that requires a hospitalization, but there's a chance that that happens. And if it does, there are ancillary concerns beyond just that injury, right? With with COVID in those hospitals and how many beds might be available. Um, so pretty interesting things, I think, to keep an eye on. And I hope, you know, our competitors aren't listening to this and I'm giving away story ideas for free. But um, those are... Uh, couple of things that I wanted to leave the listeners with uh, to just kind of think about here over the weekend as they as they continue to consume MLS's back. Yeah, I and mean, I only have one one other thing I wanted to hit on, and I'm just going to throw the question to you. How, how bothered are you? We've been talking a lot about the TV broadcast. How bothered, if at all, are you by the, the ads that are on display on the far side of the field? But obviously, the bigger discussion has been that huge Adidas ad that's projected onto the field which seemingly potentially breaks FIFA rules, but maybe doesn't if it's not an official FIFA competition. The laws of the game kind of say yeah, you can't have commercial things on the field. Yeah, I don't think it does also because it's not actually on the field. Yeah, it's not actually on the field. It's just imposed on the broadcast. So I don't think it's technically illegal. Um, but yeah, how do I feel about that stuff? Um, it doesn't bother me too much. I feel like I can kind of... Tune it out is the wrong word, right? That's more of a hearing thing, an audio thing. But I feel like I can kind of see past it. Like, I don't really pay much attention to it, to be honest. It is, though, a, a reminder of why all of this is happening. Kind of right there in your face. You know, this is happening so teams and owners can make money. Um, that's it, right? Um, and I think, <laughs> you know, I was, I was texting with somebody today and he's like, they might as well... Might as well tattoo a lot of this stuff, a lot of these logos on the players. There's so many of them. And, you know, the guy was joking around, but it wasn't that far off. Um, so, it, you know, as a viewer, it doesn't really bother me that much. As 
as a person who is, you know, has some concerns about the risks around this tournament and what it, what it's all happening for. Um, it's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit off in terms of how much of a reminder it is that, Hey, yeah, this is about, um, this is about just making money for some incredibly wealthy people, um, and putting some very much less wealthy people in, in, in risk because of that. So, um, yeah. How do you feel about him? Yeah, I think you summed it up pretty well. It doesn't bo- it doesn't bother me watching the game. It it really doesn't have an impact on me, but I do agree that it just, you know, it, it the league is trying to recover as much revenue as they possibly can and to to, you know, decrease the losses from this season as much as they possibly can. And yeah, that's what this tournament was about. It was about recovering as recovering those funds and trying to do what it can to survive um and it's not like it's going to go anywhere like you said these are all billionaire owners but you know they're trying to limit the bleeding and limit their losses and yeah that's what that's why this tournament is happening now that's why it's happening in orlando that's why it's um you know that's why it's happening at disney and espn and i think that we all kind of if we didn't already remember that certainly we know it every time we see that adidas logo across the field um, but it, I, you know, I, I don't, as I was watching the broadcast, I was surprised that how little I was bugged by the amount of advertisements. I was a little bit worried about what the boards would look like on the far side of the field, but they don't really bother me too much. Yeah. I'm kind of saying, um, someone described it as like a home run derby of advertising to me. There, there've been some funny lines to come out of it, but yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't bug me maybe too much, but I understand why it might bug some others. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's, this whole thing is weird. Uh, this whole thing feels a little off to me and, and, you know, maybe it doesn't to you if you're listening, but, um, yeah, the whole thing is just a little bizarre, Paul. And you know, what's weird, it's going to be hard for me to shake that feeling. Not, not to, not to cut you off again, but the weirdest part, not the weirdest part, but for this, for this podcast, at least is like we actually talked about soccer and our intent with allocation disorder yeah, man. is to like never talk about soccer on this podcast, right? Like the whole design of this <laughs> podcast is to talk about these ancillary, these these topics about how the league runs and what happens behind the scenes to to impact the competition on the field and the rules and the nitty gritty and the, you know, inside baseball stuff. Like that's kind of the design of this podcast. And we're like, we're not going to be any other podcast and talk about soccer, but we've talked about so many non-soccer things that we actually talked about soccer on this podcast today. So maybe all the people on Twitter who are like, Hey, stop talking about COVID and and pay attention to soccer. (laughs) They should just listen to the one segment of allocation disorder today where we, where we talked about soccer. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. We showed the haters. We showed them rub their face in it. Um, I think I think that's as good a place to end as any. Paul, what do you think? You got any? You you got any other uh, parting shots for, no, that's for the it. people that that's are it. mean to us on Twitter? That's good? it. And shout out to all the people rep- representing the turn Turnpike Tussle on Twitter. I see all of you. <laughs> the Turnpike Tussle crew. It, it's growing. The Turnpike Tussle army. The Tusslers. Um, we're here for you. We see you. Or Paul is, anyway. I don't know if I am. Um, Anyway, this has been Allocation Disorder. I'm Sam. He's Paul. Thanks for listening. Until next time, enjoy MLS is back. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening.